the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together and uh, a lot to cover today. Some exciting news, very exciting news, actually. I have to tell you that I I am a periodic listener of Scott Adams' uh, daily, he does a daily um sort of talk a 30 to 45 minute talk and he used to do it on periscope now he does it on youtube and periscope and today i happened to tune in to his uh on youtube and um so i'm listening kind of it's funny he i listen to him almost as background noise and so i'm listening in and uh there i am and i get through um uh the uh i get through in about halfway through his thing and i hear him say ed martin had a good tweet ed martin had a good tweet really and so he went on and he had noticed my tweet, which I did actually tag him on. And my tweet is what we've been talking about. But this is the most important thing I can tell you. It's so important. I'm going to do this whole segment on this. I want you to understand we're going to have great guests today uh, on the program here. We'll talk with Todd Bensman, who's got a new book out. He's also writing incredibly well over at the Center for Immig- Immigration Studies. He's super. Uh, we'll also have uh, Dr. Brett Decker on uh, today. So we got a lot to cover and we'll do all that. But I want you mostly to be thinking about uh, the simple fact. Oh, excuse me. I won't. It's not Dr. Brett Decker. It's uh, Fred Zelanko. Fred Zelanko, uh, who is a great friend of mine, who's going to have a comment or two on Rush Limbaugh. We're going to continue that effort to uh, to uh, kind of uh, spend some time talking with um, with uh, folks about uh, 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 Rush Limbaugh and the power of Rush Limbaugh. So, uh, OK, but back this is what I want to talk about. I want, it's so important. The, the, the Nancy Pelosi capital insurrection hoax. And this is the tweet that I tweeted, and, and, and this is what uh, uh, Scott Adams noticed. My tweet went like this. The Russia hoax, which was a lie about elections, the 2016 election, in which and, and the media, big tech, big media, and gov- big government, the Mueller report, dragged on and made, it, made the lie about elections a truth. That's the Russia hoax. And then I said, that's about elections. The other one, though, in the last four years was what's called the fine people hoax, where the media and the big tech and the left lied about what Donald Trump said. He did not say that the uh, white supremacists or neo-Nazis were fine people. He said the opposite. He condemned them. But the message, the hoax was, the lie was uh, white supremacy is what the people of the Republican Party like. And that hoax that lie became a truth. It had an, it had an effect. It had an effect. Has an effect on lots of people. So you have two great hoaxes in the last four years. One, the Russia hoax about elections, the election of 2016. It was a lie, and the other, uh, the fine people hoax, which was a lie about white supremacy, and it was a lie. But it was both of them very effective because of the power of big tech, big media, and of course, big government, the big the left, and the use of government, the use of their power. You take those two together and combine them, or as I said, jokingly kind of said, if they if they went and had uh, children, the child would be the insta capital insurrection host, because the capital insurrection host is based on the two ideas that you can't protest the election of November third. You must be crazy, and if you're being told to protest, you're really part of the cabal, the insurrection. And by the way, those are white supremacists. 
Now, neither one of these lies are true, but they are packaged up together. And the Capitol insurrection hoax, which is Nancy Pelosi's doing, it's so far very effective. It has the ability to make the American people think terribly about Republicans. It has the ability of distracting Trump supporters or anyone from asking any serious questions about what exactly exactly has happened to the uh, country with regard to the election, the November 3rd election. What exactly happened? We're not even allowed to get a look at what happened. And so you're watching the Capitol insurrection hoax of Nancy Pelosi being used to do two things very effectively. One, it is marginalizing the American people, uh, marginalizing Republicans or Trump supporters in the eyes of the American people. And over time, that has an effect. People begin to step back from support for a candidate, a party or something that has such negative things associated with it, right? That's a, that's a reality. And number two, it distracts or inoculates you from going backwards to cover what is the actual question, what happened on November 3rd. There's no question what happened at the Capitol. A bunch of people were protesting and a few of them got out of hand and all the rest of it is a lie. There's not a mystery there. There is a mystery to what happened on November 3rd. Why did certain jurisdictions stop counting in the middle of the night? What's the answer for that? Why is somebody not giving us the answer for why a half a dozen jurisdictions in very key places stopped counting? Anyway, my point is back to the back to the capital insurrection hoax. We're watching the narrative machine and I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine. She's very savvy. Uh, she's a very savvy policy person, but she's, she really understands messaging. And I was on the phone with her. She lives down in Florida, I think. We're, I'm up in Virginia, so there's ice everywhere. I, th- I don't think she has any ice down there, but somehow we were losing our phone connection. But before we got disconnected, I was, we were talking about this, and I, w- I was describing, and she's very good at uh, c- crystallizing my ramblings uh, and we're, as we're talking. And when we f- finished this, I don't know, 15-minute discussion, I, I came away more more amped up than ever that the narrative machine big tech rewiring our brains big media teaching us to be agitated and return and msnbc cnn fox news model and then big government they're they're taking away from us the chance in this case to even get to the truth and when you look at different pieces of the november 3rd uh the post november 3rd actions you just get these snippets of that seem like crazy people you get cracking you get you get this you get that you get all these things and you get losing losing they say losing we aren't even getting any of the facts and we're we're not getting the facts in such a way in other words we're being left we're being bereft of the facts we're being being you know kept from getting to the bottom that it's almost impossible to feel confident about the election and what i was saying to my friend and what i think i've said to you is what we have to have is we have to have and take the time to pull back from the narrative machine that's trying to drag us towards the uh, the insurrection, the great capital insurrection of January 6th, uh, as engineered or as described by Pelosi, pull back from that and say, okay, what is it about November 3rd that we can assess? Is there a way to cut through all the extra stuff and pull out all of the true nuggets to understand it? And the reason why, by the way, is not to change the Constitution or remove the president. I, I, we're past that. We do have a system that gives us stability. It's the envy of the world. We went through that process. I always said that. There's no time for, for debating that. But we have a system that relies on the confidence of the people. If the people don't believe that our elections work because the system has been so poorly run and we've been forced to look past the concerns, well, then we have a problem. 
And as I used to say when I was at the Board of Elections in St. Louis, there's two questions. I ran the board for two years. There's two things, two goals you have to have. Run a good system. Run a good election system. That takes hard work and good people. And then build the confidence of the people in your community that they want to vote, that they believe it counts, that the system is good for them. Right now we have a system that people, large swaths of the country, believe is not serious and not, and we're being held back by the narrative machine from getting to the bottom of it and and so my point is we we do need to get to the bottom of the facts not to change the president but to see what really happened and then we need to assess what we can do to change the confidence because a lot of the reforms of the past and i'll go back to after 2000 after 2000 bush v gore you saw the help america vote act that was passed in the next two or three years it basically threw money at the problem and money will often help but it often masquerades and masks the real underlying problem so the help america vote act in some ways it threw money at the problem let people get up upgrades from systems where they were using punch cards and hanging chads but they got themselves into a situation where they were relying on new uh, software systems that people had never seen and worked with before and it's been a kind of ongoing challenge they also federalized a bunch of the issues in order to get the money for the help america vote act local jurisdictions had to sign on to the sort of rules of the game and some of that stuff wasn't very good you know wasn't easy to manipulate you know there's rules under the help america vote act and federal laws you can't remove people I think this is still true. You can't remove people from the voting rolls in a federal election, in a federal manner, for two full elections. So almost two plus years because of the federal law. Well, if you run an election board in the city of St. Louis, for example, you have an incredibly high number of people that move out. It's some incredible number, like the average number of moves in the in a year are like 40% of the population move because it's a relatively it's a relatively transient population. Well, if you can't remove them from the voting rolls when they move out of St. Louis into another jurisdiction and, and they move back and they move forward, it gets to be really a, your hamstrung. So what I did in that tweet that Scott Adams noticed, which was great and my friend and I were talking about, was messaged what was happening in a way that people could understand it. And conservatives have to know it's not about being right only. You want to be right. You don't want to be a liar. That's true. But you've got to figure out how to message things and take the time to battle back. You very, very rarely get a knockout blow, which is like, here's, you know, uh, Jovan Hutton Pulitzer or Sidney Powell or Matt Brainerd or or the Election Integrity Pro- uh, Project. Here's the smoking gun to change our whole mindset on this. No. What's going to change the mindset on this is a thousand facts put together in a mosaic So people can understand and point to it and say, what I felt about this election, I can see in the facts here, and now I relate to it. And by the way, I want the election officials and the legislators and the government to do a better job with XYZ. You won't get good reform done unless you build that mosaic, because you'll be beaten back by the narrative machine, big tech, big media, big government. Just like Nancy Pelosi's trying to do to us right now. So, all right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we got some great guests. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com to uh, follow all my interviews and get signed up for the Daily Wink and a lot more there. Talk to you. Excuse me. Be back in a moment. Ed Martin, Pro America Report. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. You know, I've been um, 
I've been doing these, uh, when I have the opportunity, I've been talking to folks that knew Rush Limbaugh to give some perspective on his uh, career and, of course, his passing and all. And one of the guys that I, well, I talk to him all the time about everything media related, especially his name, Fred Zelanko. And Fred Zelanko is now the executive director of the Family Vision uh, Library, also the founder, I think, of Family Vision Media. Um, if you um, if you go to their Facebook page, go to their website, you'll see a lot of the different things they're doing, podcasts, uh, creative, thinking creatively about how to be out in the digital media world. And Fred had a long and storied career in radio, worked at uh, for Bob Hyland at KMOX, the famous KMOX. Uh, also um, was worked, worked there for years, also at KTRS, a big station in St. Louis, and worked with Rush Limbaugh, I guess at least once in studio when he came to St. Louis. But welcome to the program, Fred. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Ed. Yeah, uh, one time well, he he he, yeah, ahead, he, uh, he signed with Tim Works in 1994. He had previously uh-huh. been on a crosstown uh, smaller station, but he was gaining so much popularity, Camworks could not ignore him. And so they needed uh, something to pep up their middays, and they signed Rush to uh, be on the air from 11 to 2 on KMOX in St. Louis. It's a 50,000-watt Clear Channel radio station. Uh, and it was their first endeavor into um, syndicated radio because KMOX was all live and local with homegrown talent. And the kind of mm. talent, just, just to give you an idea, that came out of there in the sports department alone, uh, when I started there, I worked with Gary Bender, who went on to uh, TV success with CBS. Dan Deardorff. Right, of course. Um, uh-huh. So Dan Deardorff, Gary Bender, uh, Bob Costas, Jack Buck, uh, a guy wow. named Bob Starr, who came out of Boston. Uh, these were all just in the sports department alone. Okay, so KMOX had, yeah. had a very wide reputation for homegrown talent. And so Rush mm-hmm. Limbaugh was a real shock to the culture there at KMOX, especially in-house, because he was the first syndicated program. Well, part of his deal was to come to town and originate a broadcast from the KMOX studios. And so Tom Langmeyer, who was the program director at that time at KMOX, said to me, I want you to be Rush's uh, board op that day and, uh, you know, just produce his program and make sure that it gets the, to his network all well and good. So I did. I, I uh, was introduced to Rush by Tom Langmeyer. He said, here's uh, Fred Zolander, who's going to be a producer engineer for the day of Rush, and we chit-chatted for just a very brief time. And then all the studio, or the station big weeks came in, the general manager, the sales manager, uh, various key sponsors that were going to support his program. And they all got their picture taken with him and shook his hand. And I sat <laughs> at the studio waiting for this all to be over, knowing that we had to go on the air in about three minutes. And they finally got out the door, and I then worked my way to the control board, and I sat behind it, and I started setting up the control board for the broadcast, and Rush said, Fred, I know you're very good at what you do, but if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to run my own equipment. And I said, oh, that's no problem. So I showed him how to turn the microphone on and how to get the callers on and how to hit the buttons for the commercials, and then I started to leave. I was going to go watch the show from the control room. And as I started to walk out, he said, oh, no, 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 don't leave, don't leave. He said, I need you uh, I, I need you to come back. Grab that chair over there and sit right here. And I mean right at his right elbow. And he said, watch what I'm doing, and if I start to mess something up, jump up and fix it. 
And so for the next huh. three hours, I had this wonderful opportunity to get to know Rush Limbaugh. Because during every commercial wow. break and every news break, we chit-chatted and we talked. And we talked about politics. We talked about sports. We talked about his career. We talked about KMOX. See, Rush grew up in Cape Girardeau, Illinois, or Cape Girardeau, Missouri, uh, south of, uh, of St. Louis, about two and a half hours. And so he would listen to the Cardinal games on KMOX at night as a kid. So uh, he wanted to know course, what was Jack Buck like? And how did how did uh-huh. Bob Costas <laughs> end up from Syracuse University working at, at Camel X, you know, and, and all that stuff. And and so we talked and I remember asking Rush during one of the conversations, I said, What do you think made you so successful? He said, You know, Fred, uh-huh. I learned early on when I got into news talk that I had to be entertaining first. And so I, I, he said, I knew I had a good message and I wanted to talk about conservative politics. And you know, he wrote the wave of, of Reagan's conservative, right. uh, conservative right. conservatism. And he caught the wave just at the right time in 1988. He said, I figured out I had to be entertaining first in order to get the, the uh, public's attention, the listener's attention, and to get my message across. And so, you know, I can do this show with one arm tied behind my back, talent on loan from God. I mean, that was his uh, 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 Barnum and Bailey in him. He, he was a great right, right, promoter, right. you know. The other thing I noticed about right. Rush is he was very, he had intellectual curiosity about everything. You know, I, 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 I trained talk show hosts over my career in radio and stuff like that. And I was all, I would always look for the talent that had great intellectual curiosity about any given topic for about 15 minutes at a time. They, they make great talk show hosts. Uh, and he had right. great intellectual curiosity about, about everything. He was very easy to talk to. He was very Midwest in his values. And he was proud to be from the Midwest. He told me that. And he was mm-hmm. proud to be on KMOX at that time. That was the gold standard for him right. for his syndicated radio show at that time to get on Camel X, you know, the station he grew up listening to in this 50,000-watt blowtorch in the Midwest. Uh, but he was very engaging, uh, very nice to talk to. After those three hours, I felt like I knew him really, really well. But here's what mm. I've discovered about Rush that I thought, okay, here's a once-in-a-generation talent. Uh, right. At that time, I was producing a show, the program before Rush, uh, from 8.30 to 11. It's called The Morning Meeting. And that was the lead-in to Rush's show on 11. Well, when we announced and we put Rush Limbaugh on the air on Camel Else, being the first syndicated out-of-the-market program, people started calling me, uh, the producer of the show before his, about 10 mm-hmm. minutes before oh. every show, the first two weeks, <laughs> my phone bank just lit up. And it was St. Louis listeners calling, and, and they would say things like, I can't stand Rush Limbaugh. I don't know why you guys ever put him on the air. He's not St. Louis. He's not up to the standards of KMOX. And I just can't stand him. And I won't listen to him. I just, I, I said, and I would ask a few of these listeners, I'd say, so what upsets you so much about Rush Limbaugh? Well, you know what he said last Monday? And then they would say verbatim what he said. And Tuesday, he said this. <laughs> the next Friday, he right. said that. And I would say, oh, I thought you never listened to him. And then they'd hang up. <laughs> That's funny. Wow. <laughs> so he wow. We're ta- <laughs> I mean, even the people that disliked him listened to him. 
And so we're talking with Fred, you know. Fred, Fred Zalanko, a longtime uh, media executive in St. Louis, worked with Rush Limbaugh when he was syndicated at KMOX, which he was for all those years. Uh, Fred is now the executive director at the Family Vision Media. If you go to family, excuse me, familyvisionmedia.org, you'll see all about it. A very interesting effort that uh, Fred is undertaking. He's got some great people on his team, a podcast, other resources. Again, familyvisionmedia.org. Uh, Fred, well, I, I, that's that, that's um, that's. Limbaugh, the stories that are coming out about him are, are they're starting. It's so interesting to get the context, especially people that are nice. There's mean people too. But what comes next, Fred? I mean, you watched all these people come up. You watched. You just listed all these famous people. Everybody retires or, or passes away. But what what comes next in talk radio? I mean, how does talk radio uh, flourish? There's really nobody now. There, there's nobody who's a dominant national figure like Rush Limbaugh, right? I mean, it's all, it's just it's gone. What happens next? No, it's going to be difficult for the stations that carried him to replace him, uh, and you won't replace him. Um, prior to working with Rush, in the early 80s, I worked with another iconic talent in St. Louis named Jack Carney, and Jack Carney oh, yeah. was, uh, ruled the airwaves from 9 to noon every day on Camel X, uh, and was the top-billing uh, performer on that radio station, had the highest rating numbers in all, and he died suddenly at 52. And the next two or three people that succeeded him in that chair failed. Uh, right. They were almost sacrificial lambs. And huh. that, that's what I feel is, is going, going to happen here as well. I think it's going to be people are going to, are going to compare every person that succeeds him to Rush Limbaugh. And there's no comparison. He was a once-in-a-generation talent. Uh, so I think you're going to probably see uh, uh, programs that emerge. There will still be conservative talk, but there will probably be duo talents. Uh, right. They'll try to get you to like both of them. Uh, you know, yep. Rush had a mass appeal of both male and female. But I think that's going to be a problem right. going forward for conservative talk. And I think you're going to start to see male and female parents just to broaden out your huh. demographic and, and so on. And I think you're going to see more panel discussions, much like you see on Fox, hmm. like with the five yeah. and so on. And, and oh, you know, yeah, really, yeah. quite frankly, uh, Rush Limbaugh set the table for Roger Ailes at Fox News. That's because right, exactly. What did Roger That's right. Ailes do? Roger Ailes just took talk radio and put it on television. You know, yeah. in the early days with Hannity and O'Reilly and Megyn uh, uh, Kelly, you know, my, I remember one time I walked out into the kitchen while Bill O'Reilly was on, and my wife said, do you want me to pause this? I said, no, he's doing talk radio. I don't need to see him. I didn't need to see Hannity. <laughs> That's maybe, I needed, yeah, exactly. maybe I needed to see Megyn Kelly. But, uh, but I didn't <laughs> that's a different comment. Yeah, you know they yeah. You know, they were doing talk radio, and, and the way he structured the on-air formatics of, of Fox News was very much talk radio. You know, six, seven, eight and a half minute segments, then a break, and then right. they continue with the same topic, but a whole new set of guests. Because in radio, you understand that the audience cycles in and out. So yeah, in replacing right. Rush, you're not going to replace. Him. And uh, yeah. I think I heard you uh, on, a, on, a, on a podcast or something today say that, and you're exactly right. And I'm going to replace him. So what comes next? Yeah. You're going to see um, younger male-female pairings. I think yeah. they'll try that. But uh, you're not going to replace him. You're not going to replace Russian. Yeah. He's, he's you know, one of a kind, just like you are. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right, Fred Zalanko, thanks. I got to run. Let me just make sure. FamilyVisionMedia.org. Fred Zalanko, a good yep. friend of mine and a great perspective. Th- thank you, Fred. Just Go real ahead. quick, Ed, we're a, we're a 24-7, 365 digital resource for parents. We look at everything in the news, culture, and politics from a Christian worldview so that the parents learn it in the home and can teach it to their children. Great. Thanks, Fred. We'll have you back on again to talk Thank more. You. Fred Zalanko, ah. everybody. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. You've heard me talking for weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks about the uh, problem of our kids in school and what we're what is happening to them and what we need to have done. And uh, our next guest is John Schilling. John Schilling is the president of the American Federation for Children. And as such, he is an advocate for giving uh, the children more choices in education and empowering the parents as well as the children. And uh, so welcome, uh, John, back to the program. How are you today? Doing great. So, John, I know this is a, a this is a twisted way to say this because I know your interest to both as a you know you were a superintendent or a su- assistant superintendent you've worked on policy and you know you care about kids so you don't this isn't how you want to say it but the pandemic has certainly highlighted how education and the education establishment has failed children students and it seems to be getting worse every day which means it should be getting better for the american federation for children to make the argument hey let's do something different than the last 40 or 50 years so in some ways this crisis is an opportunity except at the federal level at least uh you got the biden administration where it looks like the only group that they won't follow the science for is the uh, teachers union so tell me the pl- the lay of the land are you finding that there's success in the states because the that the state legislators and state officials are closer to the parents are you finding that the federal government's going to give cover to the to the teachers union i mean where where are we in this uh fight to give more opportunity for the students well ed uh what the pandemic has uh laid bare for all to see is- is just how inflexible our K-12 system is and just how much families across America really need greater choice in K-12 education. Uh, Clearly, the states uh, are responding to this, and more than 20 states uh, have introduced uh, legislation that would expand private school choice, create or expand private school choice programs. Uh, So the states appear to be getting this uh, because it's, you know, state policymakers are hearing from millions of frustrated parents whose public schools have failed to deliver for their children during the pandemic. Sadly, at the federal level, um, I think the Wall Street Journal had it best in their editorial last week where they said, you know, Biden is being rolled by the teachers unions. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of truth to that. And, uh, you know, when, when, the, when the White House comes out and says, well, we think school reopening means one day a week. Well, I can't think of a parent in America who thinks school reopenings are one day a week. So, you know, unless, in, unless they're going to find, uh, find a way to, to start pushing back a little bit on the teachers' unions, uh, we're not, we don't have much hope at the federal level. I, and and we're, we, we're talking right now with John Schilling, president of the American Federation for Children. Okay, so, but the crisis, I mean, parents and kids are getting so frustrated. Um, and you've been doing this for a while, I mean, meaning advocating for more choices for parents. At the local level, are you seeing um, 
any real movement. I mean, the, the easy way to describe things, I live in Northern Virginia now, by the way, I think I, I think you do too. And so in Northern Virginia, Fairfax County, where I live, the teachers union basically elect the school board. And so the school board and the teachers union, the same thing, they're not talking differently. And so you can't say, oh, the school board, it doesn't look like they're ever going to part, at least in Fairfax, Virginia. But people are getting fed up. And, uh, and is there, are you sensing that, you know, uh, a new dynamic is taking place where, you know, in the old days, a lot of parents said, well, I picked the public schools. I don't really want to give choice or worry and move things. I mean, what's our, where's the hope here? Where's the, where, where can you point us in the direction for hope? Glad, like you, I, I do live in Fairfax County, and uh, so you and I both have seen the the horror stories that have taken place in Fairfax County. Uh, at a school board meeting a few weeks ago, the head of the local union, head of the Fairfax County Local Teachers Union, uh, was making the case that they're not even going to recommend that, that teachers go back this fall. And this is a, this is a woman who had already been vaccinated, uh, and they right. said that we're not going to go back unless all of the teachers get vaccinated and all of the students get vaccinated. I mean, it was outrageous, right. and I'm sure uh, most Americans may have seen uh, that parent from Loudoun County, Virginia, in a video that went viral at a uh, at a school board meeting, where he was, you know, he was just making the case. He was exasperated, and he was like, you know, my 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 garbage is getting picked up once a week. You know, I go to the grocery store all the time. I mean, why aren't our kids in school? Uh, and I think the the, the frustration among um, uh, among parents is just palpable, and, and you feel it just in talking to your neighbors. Uh, you you feel it, and in uh, even talking to the kids. I mean, the kids want to get back to school, and you know, one of the things that we we've seen, CDC has told us that. Um, you know, one of the great tragedies of this pandemic and the kids being out of school for so long is uh, is, is the increase in visits, mental health visits, which have gone up 30 percent over the last year. This is taking this is taking an incredible toll on our nation's children. You know, uh, we're talking with John Schilling and, and John. Uh I do also want to acknowledge my show. Our show originates out of uh, the Answer San Diego, where you have your background. I think you did your undergrad at uh, University of San Diego. So, yes, uh, hat tip there that you you got some uh, roots there where our listeners are. And, and then we blast this out to our Phyllis Schlafly Eagles as a podcast too. So lots of people hearing that. Again, um, John, uh, here's one question I wondered. Um, Donald Trump as president, he he had a pretty good record of of trying to challenge some of the uh, bureaucracy of education. He didn't really accomplish much school choice. I mean, he was I think on charters there was some movement and things, but many of us that dreamed of a second term imagined him making it a bigger priority uh, in a second term, perhaps. Um, but he did get seventy four million Americans to vote for him, and he did. He's now got a little different position because he's not in office. He could advocate differently, and down the stretch and actually in 2016 on the campaign trail, but also in the 2020 campaign trail, he talked more about school choice and he talked more about the necessity. Do you have any sense that that issue uh, of empowering parents to give their students more options could sort of become one of the MAGA issues at the center of this whole movement? Because you've got to be looking for engines that will will facilitate and drive some of the change at the local level. How, how, how How do you feel about that? Well, the president, uh, President Trump, was a, was a very strong supporter of school choice. As you noted, he did talk about it during the 2016 campaign. Uh, there were some efforts to try to get school choice into the 2017 tax bill. Uh, every budget that the president introduced uh, included, um, you know, redirecting some existing federal funds to support school choice. 
Uh, but we couldn't get uh, we just couldn't get any traction in Congress for that. And, and frankly, we couldn't get traction uh, in Congress on either side of the aisle uh, because so many of these uh, federal education programs are formulaic and, uh, you know, they all have they all have uh, sponsors <laughs> in Congress. Right. But uh, but when you look when you look at the polling for school choice, 65 percent of voters support school choice. And Ed, this this support cuts across. Uh, you know, ideological and demographic lines. I mean, 55% of Democratic voters support school choice. Uh, you know, uh, and, you know, uh, Democratic voters understand that the power of this issue, uh, but it's been really difficult to get traction among uh, Democratic policymakers. So uh, we really need uh, to make sure that, um, you know, all of the policymakers really understand uh, where the public is on this. And, you know, normally when politicians see uh, polling numbers like this they're usually rushing to do things um, so you know right. the more voices that are out there that are promoting this issue and talking about the power of school choice the better it is for kids yeah I, I totally agree I, I see the numbers the question is I, I hope in a way this con this coming together of these kind of uh, issues in, in the sense that people are fed up with the schools they're seeing too many problems and then a lot of folks there's a lot of energy in the grassroots level sort of post trump or post his presidency to sort of identify what are the issues you know what are what's going to be the future and i i'm optimistic that that will be one of them uh john what is the I've told this story a hundred times, and our mutual friend Zach Dawes will say he's tired of it. But we we had a chance to do a school choice in Missouri, where I'm from, uh, and we got it all the way through. And we got beat by the Republicans in some yeah. of the rural areas, the state, yeah. because their superintendent of schools was a good guy, and he was the biggest employer in the area, and he didn't want it. <laughs> um, are we breaking that? Are we breaking that problem of some of our establishment uh, Republicans that are saying, "Yep, we see it. We got to have it." We're, we're, we're getting there, Ed, and I, you know, we remain hopeful that we're going to get over the finish line in Missouri this year. We've got a great governor in, uh, in Governor Parsons. We've got a lot stronger support in the legislature, so I'm hopeful we can get there. But it's incumbent upon school choice advocates like us uh, you know, to make the case to rural policymakers that school choice is, in fact, a powerful issue. And at the end of the day, what this is about, this is about directly empowering families. Uh, and one of the things that we've seen, uh, you know, during the pandemic is, uh, you know, when, when the public schools have failed to deliver for families, uh, you know, families, uh, you know, have been contacting other families and they've started these things called learning pods. Well, that's school choice. Right. That's families, you know, taking the initiative because, the, you know, the K-12 system is not delivering for their kids. And so what we try to say to rural policymakers is, look. Uh, we understand, uh, you know, that there may not be a lot of private schools, there may not be a lot of charter schools, uh, but this is a powerful issue. This is directly empowering families, and this is something that you should all be for. And, you know, we, we've seen in states around the country that if we are able to pass good, strong school choice legislation uh, with good, decent scholarship amounts, you find a lot of uh, high-quality private, uh, private school providers that are willing to go into some of these places and start schools. We think that's a good thing. Well, it certainly seems like there's a lot happening. John Schilling, thanks for coming on. President of the American Federation for Children. Go to federationforchildren.org. That's federationforchildren.org. I'll put it up on social media. John, keep us informed on what you're seeing and how uh, we can keep an eye and, and help if we can get the word out. Uh, it's an important time, and it feels like people are understanding how... Um, well, how serious the need is right now. So hopefully we'll see some progress. So thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Ed. All right. We'll take a break, everybody, and come back. And I'll put all of the information from John Schilling and the American Federation for Children up on social media. We'll take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. 
This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we're upholding the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly, grassroots activist, author of 27 books, and articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Is anyone really surprised that so-called virtual learning is a whole lot of virtual with not that much learning? Experts have been saying for years that screen time is killing our kids. They weren't just talking about cartoons when they said that. Children need to have interactions with real human beings. They need to run around, interact, and play. Especially for little boys who typically have trouble sitting still, expecting them to stare at a screen for six hours each day to do schooling is destined to fail. It's not a matter of whether we have enough technology or not. Virtual learning is simply incompatible with the way young children are designed. If you're a parent dealing with a child learning virtually, I'm sure I don't have to tell you this. You already know. I want to do more than complain. Schools need to start talking about real solutions to this problem. Even with President Trump's COVID vaccine, some are saying that we will be dealing with the virus for another year or more. Waiting it out is not an option for students in crisis. The most obvious solution to consider is just opening schools back up again. Research has consistently shown that healthy children have almost no chance of dying from COVID-19. Furthermore, young children who need in-person learning the most are also much less likely to spread the virus to others. Some schools need to get over their fears and open their doors immediately before even more learning opportunities are lost for America's children. Even if a school does determine that reopening is not in students' best interest, there are still much better options to consider than virtual learning. Schools should focus more of their resources on empowering parents to teach their children at home. Home education is daunting only because parents have not had the chance to learn how to teach. Rather than punishing children in this situation, schools should empower parents who want to help their children, but just don't know where to start. All in all, it has to be said, virtual learning should be the last option schools consider in response to COVID-19. After all, no technology can replace an understanding of just how little boys and little girls are designed to learn best. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. What's the best way to rekindle the spirit of Phyllis Schlafly and the grassroots movement she energized? In this digital age, patriots and pro-family Americans can find insight and inspiration on our website, phyllisschlafly.com. Then, share your own heart and mind on social media. So join us at phyllisschlafly.com and every weekday for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Uh, quick wrap-up today. We went long on a couple of those great interviews. Uh, so let me just do a little quick wrap-up. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Don't forget, go to ProAmericaReport.com, sign up for the Daily Wink. We have done a couple of segments on Rush Limbaugh. I'm going to do another one on Monday. Uh, I've got um, Scotty Nell Hughes, who is a, a journalist and has been a, uh, all over the media field for about six or seven years, uh, particularly in the Trump era. She's going to join us on Monday and talk a little bit of Rush, and uh, we'll get a few more. I'm hoping to get David Limbaugh on the show in the next couple of weeks to talk about his brother. We'll see how that works out. Obviously, right now, they're all uh, recovering and um, planning uh, the funeral and all the things that are happening. So our thoughts and prayers are with them right now. All right. Also, next week, we will have General Flynn on the show. General Mike Flynn will be on the program. I'm not sure if that will be on Tuesday or Wednesday. We're working to set that up, but that should be great to have an update from him. 
and uh, get see what he's going to be up to next. I have some of the inside information on that, some details, and it's going to be pretty darn exciting what's going to come next with that great American. So, uh, all right, everybody. Thank you, as always, to our great uh, technical team. In this case, it was our man Todd filling in uh, for the great... Um, our, our great uh, uh, of, of, um, DJ, I was going to say his nickname, uh, but Noah, I go by Noah. And thank you for Todd stepping in there uh, while Noah's away for a day off. Thank you to Joanna for booking the show and uh, all of you for listening. Don't forget, ProAmericaReport.com. Sorry for the quick end of the show. We had some great interviews. We will be back uh, next week. Have a great weekend, everybody. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you then.